0: Let's get rolling. And I'm, thank you, Neil, for reminding me. One thing I did want to bring up, and we've been talking about this, um, we're going to be starting this foundations class. I'm using the term class. It's not necessarily a class. But next Sunday, right after service, I'm going to order pizza and things like that. This, to give you kind of a quick rundown of what this is going to look like. So next Sunday is just kind of an introduction of what we're doing. This is geared towards young people, Okay. Basically, it'll be appropriate for 10 years old and up, and we'll try to make it as simple as that. But this is open to everybody, and it is good for everybody, because it is the foundations of why it is we hold the belief system that we do, the worldview that we have. And my goal in this is to not only help teach these young people, and some adults and things like there'll be stuff that you guys have not heard before, but also teach you how to teach it to your children, grandchildren, whatever. It's crucial in today's day and age that we have a firm foundation. That firm foundation is not true because you believe it is true. Has anybody held a belief that they no longer hold? Anybody besides me? At one time you believed something. It could be about God, maybe a characteristic of God. You believed that this was right and now you've learned, oh man, I was off there. That's what we're getting at. Was the truth, did it ever change? No, the truth was over here the whole time. We were just wrong, Right? So we're going to begin to decompress that in a very simple format. But we have to understand these things. And so next Sunday, I forgot to announce it because I didn't have it written down. And that's what happens when I don't write things down. Diana gets on me all the time. She's like, hey, Chris, would you do this for me tomorrow? I said, I'd be glad to. She's like, I'm going to leave a note on your desk for you. I'm like, that's a great idea because then I remember. So, um, but it is going to be an opportunity. We're just going to come in. We're going to talk about what this is going to look like. It's going to be very low key. We're going to meet two Sundays a month. It's going to be right after service, we're going to eat lunch together, I'm going to teach, we're going to talk, we're going to just go through and have an opportunity to ask questions. Okay, why is this important? That foundation is critical. And as I'll get into some stuff today, and I wasn't trying to tie this together, but it'll tie together nicely, that foundation will set you up for the rest of your life. And my goal is, and I'll talk about this more next week, is that I do not want to be the source of answers. I want mom and dad. To be the source of answer grandma and grandpa to be the source of answer I want them to be able to go to them I want to help build that up help support that but if you look towards a minister of any kind as a source of like well he's the one that knows and all of that or she's the one that knows what happens if they move they leave I'm not going anywhere I'm not saying that but again we don't want that to happen it should be at home because they're stuck with you the rest of their lives right okay you're all on the same page Good. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now, I know we've talked about this a lot, but now we've begun a transition. We are a new creation, yes? What does that mean? When I say, you're a new creation, well, not I, but Paul, and Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Does that mean he took the old guy and spruced him up? No. He was dead. That old guy was dead. This newness in life means something. And there's a change that takes place spiritually. Is there a change that takes place emotionally? Not necessarily. Right? Is there a change that takes place physically? How great would it be? I mean, think about this sales pitch. All right? Think about this. You all know where I'm going already. But I'm like, when we do the whole bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand, and at the end of it, you got six-pack abs. Like... (laughs) It'd be such an easy sales pitch. be I mean, like, listen, give your heart to Christ, and you're going to look great in that swimsuit. Right? I mean, it'd be spectacular. But that's not how it works. The body doesn't change. Your mind, will, and emotions don't necessarily change. They're not renewed. But what has changed is this spirit man inside. He is no longer the same. He looks completely different. He is now created in the image of God. He, and that is the real you, and it could be she. Okay, don't, don't get there. But I mean, we are here as a moment because God has done something in us, which is wonderful, right? Spectacular. We should be so grateful for that, but we take it for granted. We forget where we came from. Like when you have been supernaturally saved from something, it's, it's unbelievable. People who have come out of some horrible lifestyle that have this incredible testimony that we all love hearing, we're like, man, those guys don't take that for granted, they're like, man, you don't understand. I met a guy, he was a youth pastor at a Berean church. And uh, great guy. I mean, great guy. He just did a good job. He loved the word, loved the Lord, all of that. He was a, a weightlifter, so he's kind of jacked. And We'd go lift weights together, if you can believe that. And uh, we would just talk and stuff. And, and, I mean, I'd known him for about a year and whatnot because he was out in Hastings where we were. And uh, so one day, you know, we'd never talk. And I said, man, so, I mean, tell me about it. Did you grow up in the church? He's like, oh, no. No, 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 no. And I'm like, what do you mean? Well, he had come out of this homeless lifestyle, a complete drug addict, all of that. And when he got saved, it was supernatural. The craving for drugs was gone. He said, I couldn't go a day without, I don't remember what he took, whatever it was. He said, I couldn't go a day without. I was always in some stupor. He said, the moment that I gave my life to Christ, it broke. He's like, I don't know what to do with that. Now, Berean Church is not big in the gifts of the Spirit, okay? But he's like, I don't know what to do with that. I'm like, well, I can I can kind of cool you in on a few things there. But he loved the Lord with everything because his life physically had been transformed as well. He'd never looked back at that. Those are things that we take for granted. Because he's got a great testimony. Most of us don't. We're not one that stood up and was like, yeah, I grew up in the church and... I went through this spell where I lied to my parents once in a while and I came home late for curfew. That was rough, you know. There's no drug, sex, and rock and roll in that story. That's not fun. That's not what people book like to listen to. I mean, that's just what it is. But the monotony of it has given us to the standpoint of taking for granted the supernatural power of God. And so in Romans chapter 8 we read, For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so we look at this, it's like, well, what does it mean to be carnally minded? What does it mean to be new? Well, we can establish that. What does it mean to be carnally minded? To be carnally minded is to revolve this worldview in any way that is contrary to Scripture. To look at anything through the lens outside of Scripture. To think differently. It's not immoral stuff. That's bad enough. And that's typically where we go when we think carnal. But basically, is if your belief system does not line up with Scripture, you are now carnally minded. We don't like to hear that. No different than if somebody has rejected the gifts of the Spirit, saying those have been done away with. They no longer exist. Guess what? They're thinking carnally. And nine times out of ten, okay, there's one of two reasons they believe that. Either a bad experience, and don't ever let experience be your guide to truth. Or they've been told their entire life they don't happen. And so that's all they know. Okay? Dealt with a young man one time. He he grew up in a a very conservative church. Nobody raised their hands, right? Nobody. I mean, even if they took a vote, they didn't like to raise their hand. It was too charismatic. And um, they believed that the gifts of the Spirit had completely ceased. And so when he had moved to our area, we went to lunch, and we were talking about that. I said, well, let me just show you what Scripture says. And I went through, and I just point by point went through this whole thing with him. He's like, huh. I've never heard it like that I said I imagine not so he took it back to his uh pastor and he says well, what do you think about this he's like no they're wrong he's like yeah but why they're wrong he's like uh because we don't believe that okay that was the that was the end all be all see he had no idea but he was carnally minded at that point because he had never taken it upon himself to study the scripture to see if those things which they were saying was true you guys with me we got to get this. The new creation is new by God. The mind, though, it's not. That's done by you. In Second Corinthians chapter ten. We see that I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence of lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg that you, when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence, with which I tend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. All right, now stop. Our battle is what? Physical, spiritual. Which one? Spiritual, right? Okay, great. What's it coming against? Your spirit or your mind? It's not your spirit. It can't be. If we look at the parable of the four soils, as I broke this down several weeks ago, is that it appears to be that the first soil is an unborn-again person because the devil comes to take that seed from their heart lest they believe it should be saved. Past that point, okay, Now, in my opinion, this is my opinion. You can have a different one if you want to be wrong. That's cool. And at that point, now everybody past that point is born again. But are they fruitful? No. Why? Because of the deceitfulness of riches. Their thought life is wrong. Their worldview is incorrect. Their, Their attitude is wrong in some capacity. But they are still born again. As we read this, we see that our warfare is not carnal. So we don't battle that way. We battle spiritually. But what's it coming against? Well, it's coming against strongholds arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against what the knowledge of God what does that mean that you have the mind of God not necessarily it means who God is and who you are in relationship with him and how you worship God you see all of those things come into play here it matters and as we've learned in Ephesians chapter 6 that the battlefield is in the mind. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the methods of which he attacks. And here's the thing. He attacks non-believers in the same method that he attacks believers. The differentiation is strictly this. You have the ability and responsibility to deal with it. We don't. We want to just lay there and just roll over and be like, oh, I don't know why I'm being attacked like this. I'm telling you what, if we would simply do what Scripture said, what would this world be like? If you just took the principles of Scripture, eliminated God from it, and implanted it into the world and said, guys, we're just going to follow these morals, what do you think would happen to the world? It'd be a whole different place. Put God back into it and it's a whole change. Because you know why we do these things? It's because our heart belongs to God. We're so internally grateful. That's why you give, that's why you come, that's why you read, that's why you pray. That is why you do these things, because your heart is so full of gratitude that you are willing to lay your life down as a living sacrifice for him. But we lose that. So we look at this method of which he attacks. And he comes and he just, he throws that rock time and time and time again until he finally cracks the glass, he finally breaks through and he gets you to believe wrong. And from there, it goes into a whole myriad of other stuff, which is where we're going to begin to talk about. As I told you guys last week, we begin to transition a little bit, to talk about the reality of it. Now, I'm not saying that this other stuff isn't real, but to see this put into practice in the real world. Do you guys know, maybe you don't, that there's a lot of crazy beliefs out there, lots of crazy beliefs, There are things that I've had to do in my 20 years of ministry that I never thought in a million years I would have to do. I've told you this before. For 12 weeks, I stood on Hastings College campus and had to teach that truth exists. Do you realize what a stupid statement that is? Like, they'll come up to you and they'll say, there are no absolute truths. And all you say, is it absolutely true there are no absolute truths? Like, this is so idiotic. Yeah, you're like, you can't be this dumb and still breathe, right? At some point, the breathing just stops because your brain's not strong enough. But this is the world we're in. And the question comes down to is why? Why are people so deceived? The reason they're so deceived is it's not about information. It really comes down to morality. And the morality tells them that they want to be able to do whatever they want with no consequences. There's a reason that there is a standard place That an expectation that Christians Christian lives their lives in a certain way. There was a reason that the nation of Israel was separated. As a nation set apart from all the other nations to look different, sound different, eat different, smell different. I don't know if they smell different, but you get where I'm going. There's something about them that's completely different. You know, when Jesus said, listen, be a city on a hill, a light in a dark world. That means we should live our lives in a way that we're okay with light shining on it. Because sin hates the light, loves the darkness. And so these people are here, sitting here deceived because they want what they want. They want to be able to do what they want. I've told this story. I'll tell it again. But, you know, when I was talking to a young man one time, he was the difference between evolution and creation, going back and forth. I was giving him an understanding of, you know, what it is. I don't want to get into all the myriad of details and stuff. But we got done talking. Um, he was he's like, you know, you give me a lot of things to think about, which is about all you can ask, right? Just think about it. Did you realize it's okay to use your brain? It's Okay. And I said, I want to, you know, why don't you take these books and send them with the books and stuff like that. I said, go back. Let's get together in a couple weeks. We did. He came back. And he says, boy, he's like, you know, you did give me a lot to think about. And he's like, I can really see your point. It makes a lot of sense. Basically that you can't have something from nothing. That was really the premise. I said, okay, good. He's like, but I think I'm going to stick with evolution. And I said, why is that? He says, well, if you're right, then having sex with my girlfriend is wrong. And I like that and don't want to stop. Now, is that the right or wrong reason to do anything? It's the wrong reason to do anything, right? But that was what it came down to. If the Christian worldview is true, therefore, God made everything, God gets to set the rules, and these are wrong. He didn't like that. It doesn't change the truth of it. So he had rejected truth at that point. You guys see where I'm going with this? So that's the thing. We live in this world where we just want what we want. What was the, uh, the main commandment of the satanic Bible? Do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. It's this free will, do whatever you want. Some of you guys grew up in a time where it was a free will, do whatever you want. Some of us read about it. And so all of these things are here because the world is deceived, it's run by the devil. And we here have a responsibility to be a, a light. Now, what does that mean to be a light? Well, that means light exposes darkness. It exposes the deeds, and light stands up for truth, and light does not care what you think. Light does not care how dark the room is, because light's going to do what light does, and it's going to shine. That's all it does. You can't help it. You know, I was talking to somebody a while back, and, you know, the thing is that sometimes ministry can be hard, and some of you guys have been involved in ministry, you realize that, because people aren't great. They can be a pain, and there are things that should be done, and they don't want to do them, and whatever. That's just the way it goes. But it's like, if you take somebody whose heart's for the Lord, they love God and they want to serve the Lord and they're going to serve in, no matter where they are. It's like it doesn't matter whether they're here or in Tahiti or in Japan, the same fruit is going to be born because their heart is serving the Lord. You guys get that? It's no different than you can be here or Tahiti or Japan and if your heart really doesn't belong to God, you just talk a good game, you're going to have the same results no matter where you go. The results you have in life today are are, are a reflection of all the decisions that you have made. So unless you stop making those types of decisions, nothing's going to change. Changing a zip code does not make a difference. And so when we look at this, we're like, okay, we as believers have to be a light in a dark world. Great. That means there's a lot of darkness out there. How do we combat it? Do we combat it through the flesh? No, we combat it spiritually. But you have to understand something. The world around us is seeking the supernatural. They want it. They want it bad. They want it so bad, they will believe just about anything that is put in front of them. There's a reason that most of our movies are supernatural related, whether they're superheroes or things like that. There is this strive for something bigger than themselves. I read you that, uh, uh, that post from that young lady last week, that I had to believe in something greater than me, so I went with the universe, and they're into witchcraft now. Right? So, I mean, there are people that are looking for something. They can claim to be atheists, but when you break it down, they're really not. So, what does that mean? Well, there's stuff all around us. I want to show you an example of one today. This one just came across. I get sent this stuff. I've got friends that are in ministry and people and stuff. They're like, what do you think about this stuff? Well, there's all sorts of crazy stuff. So, let me introduce you to this. This is called the Feng Shui Bracelet or the Black Obsidian Bracelet. Okay? There's some sort of a pyramid scheme or something attached to this. But by wearing this bracelet, it is promised to give you energy and wealth. Okay? Now, if it was energy, sign me up because I could use some. But there is a list of rules. And I, I, I did it quick. And there's more than this. But let me give you this. Peak shoe is that little thing right there. If you go back to the picture real quick, we'll make him work today. You kind of see him down there. Okay, that's the key part of it. Okay, go on to the rules. Wear the Pixiu Shoe bracelet if you're between 16 and 70 years old, have an active lifestyle, or you meditate regularly, which I think is ironic, okay? So you can either be active or meditate. Those aren't the same thing, right? But whatever. And I don't know what happens if you're 15 or 71, but apparently, you know, whatever. It says, wear the bracelet on your receiving hand. Now, this is it, there's arguments on these rules, okay? But the receiving hand, they tell you you should wear it on your left hand, not your right. And I'll tell you why here in a minute. Ensure Pichu's head is facing outward. So if you put him on, you don't want him facing inward towards your body. You want him facing outward away from your body. Wear the bracelet for a long time. Touch the Pichu amulet frequently. Remove the bracelet when sleeping. And I'll explain why here in a minute. Place it in your living room facing the door or window if you're not wearing it for a long time. I'll, again, I'll break these down. Cleanse Pixhue with running water, moonlight, sage, or salt regularly. Now listen, I am not the cleanest person in the world, all right? But how do you clean with moonlight? And it seems as if you cleaned with salt, that makes a bigger mess. Now again, no expert here, all right? Somebody can correct me. But that's what you're supposed to do. And sage, I assume you burn it. Be aware of the crystals that come with Pixhue. Choose the material with energies that you'll benefit the most. Pack the bracelet in a red cloth if it breaks. And there's a whole bunch of, again, rules that are associated with all of this. So here's, here's the thing. It says do not wear it in the shower. You have to take it off. The other thing is, is you cannot sleep with this bracelet on. Because if it is above your head, and some of you guys sleep with your hand over your head or whatever, that it gives bad energy at that point from that positioning. It will give you nightmares. Okay? So you can't wear it at night. When you take it off, you have to take it into the living room. And you have it face a door or window because it will protect you from what, I don't know. But it will protect you from these bad energies or something, I'm not sure. It does not like dirt, so you have to keep it clean. So if you go for a jog or something like that, don't know why you would, but if you probably would if you wore this, you'd have to take it off. Don't wear it while doing any exercising at all. The other thing, I like this, don't let it face the toilet. I'm just putting it out there. Okay? Don't put it in front of a mirror because it does not like... the. It's threatened by its reflection. And the energies will... Right? You guys ever had a dog that sees a mirror and they bark at... It's the cutest thing ever. Anyway. Wearing it on your left hand, it will give you wealth and abundance. Wear it on your right hand he does the opposite and there was a lady that was giving a testimony and now hers was the opposite she said my right hand must be my receiving hand because when I wore it on my right hand I would have money that would come in I'd check my bank account there was more money in there than was supposed to be I would reach in my jeans pocket and pull out a five dollar bill okay So apparently Pikachu you like sneaks the five dollar bill in your pocket at night or something I don't know but she said, I wore it on my left hand. It's like, all of a sudden, we had all these things happen. My truck broke down and all of this. So she's like, you got to have the positive energy. And we're all sitting here like, this is so stupid. And you're right. It is so stupid. But do you realize the way we look at this is the same way that the world looks at us and our belief system with God? Same way. Because we make similar type statements. Now, my question always comes back to with these lists of rules is, how do you know? Because they talk about this when they put these two together, they're handcrafted. They're done in, I'm gonna say Japan, but don't quote me on that, by a Buddhist monk who they'll pray over it has to be done in a certain way at a certain time of day. They'll ding the bell or burn or whatever it is they do. And that's how it's blessed. And you can buy that blessing for thirty nine ninety five online, okay? Isn't that spectacular? So this is bringing wealth to somebody. I just don't know who it is, right? And some of you are like, man, that's a great idea. I should have thought of something similar. It's like, you guys remember back in the, would have been the early 2000s when you had the, uh, what was it, the magnetic bracelet or whatever, and they had everybody wearing those. I mean, it was just, everybody had one. And it was a total scam. Because did you guys see how they did the, Test like to show you how your balance was off. supposed to happen. You guys are looking at me like deer in headlights. Do you guys not know this stuff? Do you guys remember? They were selling them everywhere. They're like seven, eight bucks. Am I alone here? Anybody? Okay. All right. All right. Fine. So they were selling these things. You'd be walking through the mall and there'd be those little kiosks. And they're like, hey, we want to test you. Can I borrow you? I'm going to demonstrate this because I have to. You're young enough. You probably don't remember this. Okay. This is what they do. They say, like, we're going to test to see if your balance is off. So I want you to put, your, put this hand out. Yeah, that hand there. Put it off to the side here like this. Yeah, there you go. And they would say, oh, your balance is off because look, when I do this, it pulls you down, okay? Right? And so he's like, now, put on this bracelet, okay? Now when I do this, what happens? You don't fall as as much. Now, I can pull you down pretty easily. But it'd be little girls doing this. And what happens, you can sit down. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here. He's like, I wouldn't have been here if I'd known he was going to do that but they would do it and your body naturally reacts because it's expecting it the second time you didn't know what was going to happen. Millions of dollars changed hands. Why? Because people believed it. Now, why do people believe this stuff? Because they're looking for something supernatural. That's the thing. We want it. And we'll look anywhere we can to find it except for one source. You want me to show it to you? It's right here. This doesn't count. Because of that, we will go everywhere else. I told you they just opened a tattoo parlor over there in Auburn and she's selling crystals and talking about, you know, and there's a, these people like, oh, man, I need these crystals and they give me energy and all this other stuff. No, they don't. They give somebody else a fat bank account. That's what they do. So, again, why are we talking about this? How did we come to this, this spot? It's the mind. You see, they're blinded. The enemy has gotten in there convinced them of something to be true, and they will believe it. We can say the same thing about essential oils. Anybody? No? Nothing? Okay, I'm just kidding. Don't crucify me, all right? It's just a joke. It's alright. I know. She's not. That's a really good one too. So if you tell her I said that, that'd be great. So we gotta understand something. You and I should not be deceived by any of this, but I promise you there are Christian believers that believe this stuff. No different than reading their horoscopes or anything like this. They believe this stuff in some way. That is the reason that we see a lot of churches today that are propagating a lot of New Age stuff without realizing they're into the New Age, is because they are looking for something, and this stuff is prominent. Anybody ever heard of this before today? I hadn't either, but apparently it's becoming a big trend. Okay, And so when we talk about this stuff, we have to understand, the world is looking for the supernatural. The enemy is going to give them what they want, but the source of supernatural movement should come from God, because God is greater than all of this stuff. You and I have an, a, a responsibility, we are to put on the whole armor of God, to withstand the attacks of the enemy. It's been given to us. Whose job is to put it on? Yours. Who saved our spirit? God. Who changes their mind? You. This is the difference. See, so we read this last week in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, be sober. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same suffering are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Now you think about those bracelets. Why do they do these mass marketing? Because most of us in the rooms are like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I promise you it's not. There are stupider things, but it's out there. Because if you go to enough people, you're going to find somebody's going to buy that. See, he goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That means, this is written to believers. This isn't a handbook like, hey, just so you know, I know you don't believe in Jesus, but there's a real devil out there, and he's attacking you, so you should look for this. He's looking for whom he may devour. That means he's going to attack you. He's going to come and throw that rock and see how you respond. And if you don't respond consistently with Scripture, going back to what the Word says, then eventually he will break through and he will get a stronghold in your life. We'll talk more about that later. Psalm chapter 22, verse 12 is likely where, where uh, Peter was coming from this. It says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They, they gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. You've got to understand something. To a first century Jew, a lion was one of the most ferocious beasts that were out there. And the reason they probably believed that is because Nero was killing Christians with lions. I mean, if you were going to face something, you was pretty much, listen, you and I are going to battle a lion, probably not going to end well. And it would capture Christians. They would take them to the games. they put them in the, the arenas, and the lions would eat them. I mean, this is something that... They were well aware of. And he's coming at them and he's saying, I'm going to get you. I'm going to roar. The thing is, is we have to understand something. We don't have to be devoured. When we are, it is our fault. It's not God's fault. It is our fault. When something from the enemy comes in and attacks us, our response to it is our responsibility. How we come through it is our responsibility. Because when you believe what God has said, then you will not waver from that faith no matter what the circumstances are this is why we don't allow our situation or situations in life dictate what truth is truth is has nothing to do with your experience I showed you this last week and many of us are familiar with this with the Wizard of Oz right the great and powerful Oz who had everybody in fear and trembling, and they knew they had to go see him, and he, he had to keep everybody away, and he kept this facade on because it kept people in fear. And if they're in fear, they'll do what I tell them to. And it really worked well until they looked behind the curtain and saw this goofy old man. Pay no attention to the man behind that curtain. When they saw him, guess what? Well, he's not so scary. Not at all. See, this is the enemy. Like a roaring lion, he screams he makes a bunch of noise do people fall for it absolutely should they here's a question for you what should a born-again believer fear should we be worried about our lives no should we fear about the economy no should we fear about sickness no but do we yep we do because it tells us where our belief system is. Have we fully sold out to God? I mean, for Abraham to believe God and get up and leave his homeland and go where he was told to go and to take Isaac up onto the mountain, his only son, the one that God had promised him, took an act of faith, believing God, because he knew, well, if I kill him, he's going to raise him from the dead because he told me he's going to have kids. You see, you will act in response to your belief system. What if he didn't believe God? What well, he's like, oh, God, this is the son you gave me. Why, are, why am I doing this? Wait a minute. Well... Are you going to give me another one? Like, how's this going to work out? He just did it. Because he knew. No matter what happened, God was going to raise him from the dead. There was no no way around it. And we see that in that faith. So what do a born-again believer have to fear? The answer is nothing. Why not? Why do we have nothing to fear? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It says, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptize him in the name of the of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now let's stop here for a minute. You notice that the go and make disciples is tied into the authority that Jesus has. What authority does He have that's been given to Him? Well, it says in heaven, that's good, and on earth, that's great. That's where we are. So because of this, so go therefore. So because of this, you go and you make disciples of all nations. That means you don't fear for your life, you don't fear about the finances. You don't fear about the sickness. You go and you make disciples of all nations. You baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is a whole other caveat on things which we're not going to talk about right now. And you teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. So what does the church do today? Well, we believe this, that Jesus has all authority, but that really doesn't have anything to do with us. And then when he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, we believe that to a degree. We think it's important for somebody to go. It just won't be us. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're really good at that. The church in America is really good about baptism. We just missed the part leading up to the baptism. And then teach them to observe all things that I've commanded. That's only true on certain parts. It's the love part. You see, we change this. Because we are introspective of what our lives and what God can do for me. Whether we want to admit it or not. But when we give our lives to Christ, and you notice the vernacular, we give our lives to Christ, that means I am not my own. God, what do you want from me? No matter what I own, I don't own, God owns. God, what do you want with this? No matter where I live, this is where God has me. God, where do you want me to go? Do you want me to go somewhere else? I can go somewhere else. No matter what I'm doing and planned out for the day, God, this is my plans. Is there anything that you need me to do aside from this? I mean, living your life as if it doesn't belong to you steps you up to this place where essentially the apostles lived because their lives were taken from them to a degree. Their whole life was committed to the mission. But the other people were committed to the mission and living and working and doing those other parts. But every day they were alike. Can you imagine what the streets of Jerusalem looked like? Because you had the apostles who were doing awesome stuff, but then you had the disciples that were being made. What do you think they were doing? They were still going to work, taking care of their family, and being a light everywhere they went. So the credit goes to the big guy at the top, the apostles, but I guarantee you there were hundreds of thousands of other people out there sharing Christ. It doesn't grow the way that it did without it. Twelve men did not create a new religion that took over the whole world. Everywhere we are, we bloom where we're planted, no matter where we are, because our life belongs to God. I mean, do you all know that it's like, it's okay to be in Rockport or Nebraska city or wherever you're from the rest of your life. Bloom where you're planted. Serve the Lord every day. All authority has been given to Him. All of it. Thus, it has been given to us. Now, prior to the birth of Christ, what did followers of Yahweh have to fear? It's a different set of circumstances. A born-again believer today walks in authority, and if they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, they walk in power as well. It's not one without the other. At least they should, I should put it that way. But prior to Messiah coming, it was different. What we read sometimes in the Old Testament, this would be prior to Christ, in the Old Covenant, we'll see physical things that took place, and in the New Testament, we'll see spiritual things that, that kind of match up there. Because the weapon of our warfare is not carnal. But the weapon of their warfare was carnal. Go and take the promised land. That did not mean pray about it. It meant go and take the promise. I gave this to you. Go take it. And so you see this in several parts. I want to read something from you out of Judges chapter 6. And I want you to see this. It's about Gideon. Most of us know who he is. But this is kind of a story here that's going on. And the Israelites were constantly doing what they did in the book of Judges. It's this like they serve God then they don't serve God. Then God sends judgment. And the people are bad and they feel bad and so they repent. And God raises a judge and he brings them out of this. And then they serve God and then it rents and repeat. and we do it all over again. In Judges chapter 6, I'll start in verse 1. It says, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Great way to start the chapter. So the Lord delivered in the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, because the Midianites of the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy their produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. Where they would come up with their livestock and their tents coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number. And they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So, why were they in this situation? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay? The antithesis is true. If They didn't do evil in the sight of the Lord. It came to pass, in verse 7, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel and said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you, and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God, do not fear the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now stop for a minute. You will notice a pattern. Every time God is addressing the disobedient Israelites, he always starts with something that I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that gave you this land. I told you in this case, I'm your God. Don't fear the gods of the Amorites. Just obey my voice. And what did they not do? Obey his voice. What would happen had they obeyed his voice? We wouldn't be reading about this, right? I mean, that is literally what it was. So let's go on. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terabith tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash and the Abysserite. While his son Gideon threshed the wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So in other words, he's, he's got some uh, harvest that he doesn't want them to know about. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty men of valor." Now who do we believe the angel of the Lord is? We believe this is Jesus, pre-incarnate. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which his his fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Now, what was his response? Why were they there? Because of their action, because of their choices, because of their belief system. What did Gideon say? Where's God at? Why did he let this happen? Where are the miracles that we saw, that we hear about? God is going to respond to him. But, I mean, look at Israel. It's the same response we have. God, why did this happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? I'm good people. Why did this bad thing happen? Why are you not not moving like you did 30 years ago, 40 years ago? There's no questions we should ask. Verse 14, the Lord said to him, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Now, look at that. He did not respond. He just told him what to do. So he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Manasseh was not a big tribe. And he's a puny little guy, apparently, I don't know. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, if you, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. They said, I will wait for you to come back. Now, so here's the deal. God just basically told him what he's going to do. You're going to do this. You're able to do this. Because all what does he have to do? Simply obey. That's it. What do the Israelites have to do? Simply obey. That's it. it. Wasn't complicated. Just do what God had said. Verse 19 Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an epoph of flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented him. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out of the broth. And so he did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. So now he is perceiving that this was God. 22 Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord and so Gideon says alas O Lord God for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face and the Lord said in peace be with you do not fear you shall not die remember this is the idea that if you see God face to face you will not live so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace to this day it is still in Ophrah and the Abyssal so that still was there at the time of this writing so what do we see God comes to Gideon Gideon's like where is God where are you at what happened to all this stuff? All the stuff I've heard about. Why are we in this situation? If God is real, then how can we be in this dire strait? Without taking into account the fact, the steps that got him there, right? We're always present in the moment of our suffering. That's all we think about. We don't think about what caused us to get there. So God, he says, all right, if this is true, then let me bring us to. So he does, and he proves himself to him. And he realizes, and he's in fear, because he recognizes this is for sure God, and I've seen him face to face. So he names this place. He creates this offering, or this, this altar. And so in verse 25, it says, It came to pass the same night as the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. Take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So he's not the bravest guy. But he is going to be obedient. So we now see part of the reason that they are in this situation. Because of this altar to Baal. And so God says, listen, you're going to tear that down. And you're going to make the sacrifice. Why the sacrifice? The sacrifice is what atoned for things. These sacrifices were taking care of this. Now, this is not going to go over very well. Verse 28. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down. And the wooden image that was beside it was cut down. And the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been uh, been built. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son, that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. Now, Joash being his father, they're saying, you're going to get rid of your son. What was the punishment of doing something like this? It was always death, no matter what. Verse 31, but Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal, would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called uh, to him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. In other words, if Baal is God, then what Gideon did, let Baal take care of it. Right? I mean, if he truly is this powerful, then let him handle it. Verse 33, Then the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew the trumpet, and the Abyssalites gathered behind him, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messenger Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. So what happened? He was kind of weak and nervous and hiding, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, this is an picturing of the Spirit coming upon us as believers, being empowered on high. Verse 36, So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. So he's still trepidatious. And this is where we get the term fleecing. Put out a fleece. Okay? So, if the wool is wet, the ground is dry, then I know that you will do this. And it was so when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. But then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me, but let me speak one more time. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. So he just doubling down. Okay, let me just make sure. But it's just setting everything up. Let's go to chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod. So the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Mora in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give to the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people return and 10,000 remain. Now look at this. Why is God making this move? Because he knows that if they win with 32,000 men, they're going to say, well, look what we did. So he said, anybody who's afraid, two-thirds leave. Bunch of pansies. Two-thirds of them leave. 32,000 down to 10. So you probably think, okay, well, that's enough. But watch what happens. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provision and their trumpets and their hands and he sent the, away all the rest of Israel. Every man to his tent retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So these 300 men are now set apart to do the mission that God has set out for them. Calling of Gideon, taking the 300 men with them. Now it's interesting how he said it. If they get down and drink like a dog, they're out. But if they pull the water out of their hand... And uh, speculating here, but by pulling it up, they're aware of their surroundings is what they're saying. Instead of putting their head down, now they're, uh, there's a chance that they could be attacked. But he says, these 300 are what you're going to take. So you had 32,000, and now you're down to 300. How much confidence do you think Gideon has at this point? I wouldn't have much. Verse 9, it happened the same night as the Lord said to him, arise, go down inside against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah and his uh, servant to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And now the Midianites and Amalekites, the, so the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, all the sands by the seashore in multitude. So what is he saying here? He's saying that they are drastically outnumbered. And when Gideon had come there, um, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, "I've had a dream. And To my surprise, a loaf of barley, uh, stru- bre- excuse me, a loaf of barley bread, tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed." And his companion answered, "said This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. So this dream, this forewarning, was given, and it, or Gideon heard it." And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream, it was interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, when then you also blow the trumpets and on every side of the whole camp and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch just as they had posted to the watch and they blew the trumpets and broke pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and they held the torches in the left hands and the trumpets in the right hands for blowing and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon and every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When those when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Bethacacia towards Zahara, uh, as far as the border of Abel, Mahola, and Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered together Naphtali, Asher, and Almanes, and pursued the Midianites. Now, I mean, this is an incredible story. Gideon was now convinced. He's got the spirit of the Lord upon him. He's now convinced. He says, when you go out there, we blow the trumpet. You say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon are against him. And they go. And they go and they take him. The sword of each one was against themselves. And this is an incredible story about God doing something supernatural. Now here's the thing. We read this story and we look at Gideon as this hero. And man, look what God did. Isn't that incredible? The part we're missing is it all could have been avoided. Every part of it could have been avoided if they were obedient to the covenant. Think about that. If they had simply walked in the promise that God had laid out, none of this was necessary. Not one bit. If they had simply said, God, that's what you said. I'm just going to do it. Would have been a whole different story. (laughs) The Old Testament would have been pretty dull. Wouldn't have had all the interesting stories. There would have been no Samson. There would have been a lot of stuff. If they just would have simply said, God, this is what you said. And I'm going with you. It would have changed things. It would have been similar to the testimony of somebody who grew up their whole life serving God. Not of dull. Not exciting. But what is it? It's faithful. See, they were unfaithful. And they put themselves in this situation. And yet God still? Brought him out. He brought him out. He was still faithful to his work. You Think about this. This is exactly how we are. If we would just simply say, okay, God, this is what you said, and I'm going to go with it. If we took every situation and filtered it through what God has said and what God has promised, things would be different. Things wouldn't be so dire. You'd never buy that bracelet. You see, there's a lot of stuff, but we see this here. Um, about the supernatural power you get in the New Testament. We're going to go to Luke chapter 9 real quick. I'm almost done, I promise. Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 1, but we'll just understand the, the, the timeline. First of all, we believe that Luke was, is basically an order of events that took place because he said, I want to write you a more orderly account. Some of the other gospels aren't necessarily chronological. We believe that Luke is. Prior to this, he calmed the storm. He cast the demons into pigs. He healed the woman with the issue of blood. And he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. So Jesus is having a pretty good day, all right? Now we get to chapter 9, verse 1. After all of those events, plus whatever took place prior to this, he called his 12 disciples together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Uh, Do not have two uh, tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there and uh, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, you have to understand this. When they went into these cities, especially these pagan cities, they were considered unclean. And the idea is that no pious Jew would ever bring something that was unclean back into the holy land. And so if you go to a people group who are a brethren and they reject you, then you are to shake the dust off your feet just like you would a pagan city because now they have rejected Messiah. But what did he do? What did he say? I give you power and authority over all demons, and to cure diseases. Who did he say this to? The twelve. Very specific group. Let's go on, verse 6. So they departed and went to the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. And the apostles one day returned, told them all that they had done. And he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place, belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And when the multitudes knew it and followed him, he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. So they come back. They go out. They come back. The 12 were given authority over what? Demons. And to cure the diseases and to preach the kingdom of God, right? Those are the three things that they were told to do. They went out. They come back. They're, of course, excited. And they're telling him about all the stuff. Jesus receives him. He speaks about the kingdom of God. He heals everybody who had need of it. Fair enough? Okay? Now, we're going to jump down to chapter 10, but in between here, this is just for time's sake, he feeds the 5,000, and he casts the demon out of the child and throws himself in the fire. Okay? Kid. Jesus is having a pretty good week. I mean, he's getting some stuff done. This is awesome. Chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, so the things I just told you, the Lord appointed 70 others also. So who? 70. It says 70 others also implies the 12 plus 70. Fair enough? Now this is interesting, because these aren't the apostles. Different. And he sent them two by two before uh, his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves, carrying neither money, bag, knapsack, or sandals. Greet no one along the road, but whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as is set before you and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out in the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable that day for the city of Sodom than it was for them. Now stop. What did he tell them? He told them the same thing He told the twelve. You go to that city, you preach the gospel, I give you authority over demons and to heal the sick. You go and you do it. If they receive you, great. If not, you wipe the dust off your feet. Okay? Same exact outlaw. Same exact command. Same exact mandate. Verse 13. Woe to you, Therese, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done, and you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. What mighty works? Well, the feeding of the 5,000 is one. Okay? But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, the judgment, than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Verse 17. The 70 returned with joy. And the Lord... And saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Because they were surprised. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. But nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I think. You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father and who the Father is except the Son, and the one of whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. Now, two different examples He gave them his authority to go and be his representative. And both times they come back with joy. Right? This was his mandate to them. Go and do this. And when they returned the second time with the 70, we assume the 12 went with them. They said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Which tells us something. It's prior to that, the demons were not subject to them. Right? Jesus has this authority. he given it to them. And what does he say? That's great. But what you need to be rejoicing about is that your name is written in heaven. Because that's where it starts. The authority is a fruit of the relationship. We get excited about the authority. We get excited about the supernatural. But the supernatural is simply an outlayer of our positioning with God. You guys see that? You see we have to understand something is the mandate that God gave them is the mandate that God gave us. That has not changed. The authority that Jesus gave them is the same authority that Jesus gave us. The command to go and preach the gospel and heal the sick that he gave to them is the same command to preach the gospel and heal the sick that he gave to us. You have to understand something. We walk in an authority given by Jesus himself. Why is that? It's because he is the head, we are the body. Look at this, Ephesians chapter 1, last part here, I promise. Verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith, the Lord Jesus and in love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saint, and what is his exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty works of his uh, working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him head to be over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now here's the thing. Paul here, talking to the church in Ephesus, didn't cease to give thanks. That God would give them the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in what? The knowledge of who he was. That the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened, that they'd know the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of the inheritance that was coming and the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to how he worked his power in raising Christ from the dead. That's our example. But then he says that he seated him at the right hand above all principality, power, might, and dominion in every name that is named. Not only in this age but also that which is to come. Is there anything that would not be included in that list? There's nothing. And he said he put all things under his feet, gave him to head, be head over all things to the church which is his body. The fullness of him fills all in all. His head and his body are not separated. We are co- should be connected to him. Positionally, we are. You see, what gave Gideon the confidence that he could go and do what God had told him to do? The acceptance of what God said as true. When he realized that God is really going to do what he said he's going to do, time to blow the trumpets, baby, let's go. What will give us that same confidence. To walk in the positioning and authority that we are supposed to be in. The same thing. Accepting what God has told us as truth. When we realize that it changes things. I, Some of you guys are familiar with Lester Sumrall. You guys are going to hear some stories of different people and, and some from here in this church and some from stories that I know and all of this stuff. But Lester Summerall, You know what most people that didn't know him well considered Lester? An arrogant jerk. Do you know why? Because he believed what God said to be true. And he walked in that authority. And he did not back down under any circumstance. He did not care what you thought of him. He wasn't being rude. He was being authoritative. Because he knew what God had called him to do. There aren't a lot of men who fly to a foreign country and get off onto the tarmac and just say, Devil, I'm here. You better watch out. Most of us be like, I don't know where the devil is, but I'm going the other way. Right? You see, there's an authority and an expectation there. We have to begin to understand our positioning matters. But your belief system in that positioning will dictate how you act. You'll see it all around us because we live in a dark and dirty world. That enemy will go and attack us and get you to believe things or try to get you to believe things that are not true. It is time for the church to stick to the word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it is true and in every part of it that we can apply it to our lives. And Lord, that the authority and the power that you've bestowed upon us is coming strictly from a positioning that we have with you because you have promised it and we know that it is true. Lord, and I thank you that you are teaching us how we can better walk in it to give the reality of the world around us the truth of the gospel, to better walk in that power, to walk in that authority, to walk in that positioning that you have given us, Lord, and that we will not allow anything to come in between us and you. No person, no job, no nothing will interfere with our walk with you, Lord. That we may become disciplined disciples of who you have called us to be, to be your servant here on earth, Lord. We give you all the glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Guys, have a great week. See you Wednesday.